Don't worry, I'm not going to sit down. I just want to set my water over here. Uh, Let's pray together before we begin. Father, we just ask that tonight your spirit would enter this place. Lord, and that he would make clear to us, that he would open our minds to see the wonders of your Son and your Word. Lord, that this room would be free from distractions. Lord, that my words would be clear. Lord, and that our hearts and our ears and our minds would be open to see what your Word would have us to see. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've given us through faith in your Son and ask that you would meet with us tonight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the the first thing I wanted to do tonight was just uh, tell you all how thankful Jen and I have been that you guys have been so incredibly welcoming to us and our new arrival baby, Sophia. It's been nice to not have to worry about uh, meals while Jenna's recovering and I'm trying to unpack and we're trying to keep Dinah from run around in the, running around the house and uh, unpacking everything that we don't want unpacked yet. So we really appreciate the help that we've been given. Uh, another development this week that made that especially helpful was the fact that I got sick. I've been sick for a couple weeks and uh, this morning, oddly enough, I woke up and developed a cough. The good news is the cough only really bothers me when I try to talk for long periods of time. So, uh, I've confirmed with Jerry that uh, his nickname is actually Twinkle Toes, if you don't know. But if I start coughing and can't control it, he's going to come up here and do a tap routine for us while I get control of my voice. So... I say all that to say that Jen and I are very excited to be in Hannibal and to be getting settled in and unpacking. Uh, One of the things I'm really excited about being here for is that I know that at some point, Jen is going to want to go see and do all the tourist things there are to do in Hannibal because she's never been here. And when we do this, Jen will get the chance to showcase uh, what I think is one of her strangest and best talents. Uh, My wife has the ability to find the worst, the absolute worst, museums and attractions in every city. Uh, When we went to Colorado Springs, she forced me to go to the mining museum, which consisted of a barn full of old, rusty mining tools and equipment, and this tour guide who I'm pretty sure was half drunk. Uh, When we went to Washington, D.C., she took me to what I think is the National uh, Textile Museum, which is just a house filled up with smelly old rugs hanging on walls. So if you ever go to D.C., be sure not to miss that one. In Louisville, where we just moved here from, she had us go to the Thomas Edison House, which is in downtown Louisville. Now, if you don't know much about Thomas Edison, he grew up in Ohio. No, he was born in Ohio. He grew up in Michigan, and then he invented everything he invented in New Jersey. So you'll notice that Louisville is missing from that list. Uh, 
when he was 19, he moved to Kentucky, and he lived in Louisville. And the only thing that he really did that's noteworthy when he was there was he spilled some battery acid on his boss's desk and got fired for it. That's all anybody really knows about his time there. He operated a telegraph. Still, if you go to this historic part of downtown, there's a, I think it's a four-room house that he lived in while he was there. One of the rooms is decorated with stuff like Thomas Edison would have had when he was there. And then the back room is filled with a bunch of stuff that he invented somewhere else. Uh, and if you're really lucky, like Jen and I were, you'll get some crazy Thomas Edison enthusiast that's on your tour with you. He's not the tour guide, he's just there. And he'll supplement what the tour guide says with these really neat factoids about Thomas Edison that you can share with your friends at parties. So, I, mean, I tell you that story to say that it would be pretty ridiculous for us to go to the Thomas Edison house in Louisville where he spent less than two years and act like and expect that we really know about Thomas Edison. If somebody wanted to write a biography about Edison, they wouldn't just go to Louisville and think that they had gotten the whole story. They'd go to where he was born in Ohio. They'd go to where he grew up in Michigan. And, and most importantly, they would go to where he did all his significant work in New Jersey. Still, that's the way that we as Christians view the Old Testament a lot of the time. We think that it's just this collection of these quaint little coloring book stories that we don't really know anymore and they aren't really significant. We think that the title or the name Jesus Christ, we think that the Christ part is just his last name. We fail to realize most of the time that it's this title that the entire Old Testament is preparing us to receive. Without seeking to understand the Messiah as he's revealed in the Old Testament, we can never fully hope to understand Christ as who he is in the New Testament. So, I tell you all that to say that this fall, we're going to spend, I think it's 16 weeks, that might be high, we're going to go from now until Christmas, preaching through the Old Testament storyline. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a, sl a slide, yeah, there we go. These are the high points of the Old Testament storyline we're going to hit this fall. So, some of these people, like Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and David, we're going to be really familiar with. We're going to know a lot about them, and we're going to be ready to hear that story. Others, like maybe Balaam's prophecy, won't be really clear to us at first. But we're going to go through them, and we're going to see and study who Christ is from the Old Testament. And our hope is that as we go through this and we build towards Christmas, right at Christmas we're going to begin the Gospel of Matthew. So my hope is that as we do this, that we'll start to feel some of the sense of expectation that the Old Testament saints would have felt. Because they're living this, they're going through this time, and they're waiting and they're hoping and they're praying for the Messiah to come. Thankfully, we know who that is. We know Jesus as he's revealed in the New Testament. And so I hope that as we study this, we'll start to feel some of the expectations that they felt, and that when Christmas comes, it will be a, a more significant season than it may have been last year because of what we've studied this fall.
Now, in order to explain why we're going to do this, we need to go to Luke 24, 13 through 49. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Bibles at the end of the pew, uh, and you'll find today's passage on page 885 in those Bibles. Now, before you freak out and worry about how we're going to cover this many verses in this short of time, don't worry, we're not going to. We're going to focus on some key points, specifically as it relates to our study of the Old Testament. So let's go ahead and read this together, and then we'll get started. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed from, with power from on high. So that's a long passage. So we're going to go back, all the way back to the beginning, and move our way back through the passage. As we go through, uh, we're going to see that Jesus criticizes these two disciples because they fail to recognize him for who he is. At this point in Luke, Jesus has just risen from the dead, but not all his disciples know it yet, and when he meets these two on the road, they don't know who he is. It's just some stranger to them. There are four key points in this passage which specifically relate to why we're going to study the Old Testament this far. The first of these three points, the first, actually, the first three of these points indicate that these two disciples failed to recognize Jesus for who he is. This is indicated by their direction, their description of Jesus, and their lack of faith in the resurrection. The last point shows how Jesus corrects corrects these misconceptions by teaching them from the Old Testament. What he's saying and he's teaching is that they should have recognized him from the Old Testament. They should have known that he was the Messiah. We'll find the first point in verse 13. There we read that they were going to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As far back as Luke chapter 9 uh, Luke and Jesus begin emphasizing the city of Jerusalem. They begin building and showing how it's important for Jesus' ministry, and that's where he's going to accomplish all the things that he said he was going to do. So the fact that these disciples are heading away from the city at this time is pretty significant. In Luke 9, 30 through 31, Moses and Elijah appear at Jesus' transfiguration and speak about his departure and what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, Jesus responds to what they've said, and he sets his face to Jerusalem. He's saying that because they've said... Uh, he, he responds by saying that because they've said what they've said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 13.33, Jesus makes it clear that he's going to die in Jerusalem. In Luke 18.31... Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem specifically for the reason that everything that's written about him in the prophets can be fulfilled. So, obviously, for Jesus, Jerusalem is this, the place that he's going to do everything. Just like Thomas Edison did all his work in New Jersey, for Jesus, that place is Jerusalem. So the fact that his disciples, these people that were his closest follower, followers, as soon as he's died, they're just leaving town, means that they've lost faith in who he was. The second key point we find in verses 19 through 21. This is where Jesus, who to them at this time is a stranger, asks them about what has happened in Jerusalem. They respond to him by describing Jesus. So they're describing Jesus to Jesus, but they don't know that Jesus is Jesus. That's not confusing. 
They describe him as a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now, the fact that they call him a prophet, sometimes in our day and age when people like a Muslim would say Jesus was a prophet, we view that as a negative description of Jesus. We're saying that Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He was a lot more than a prophet. So the fact that they describe him as a prophet is a bad thing. But for these disciples, for Jews, the fact that Jesus was a prophet was a significant thing. As far back as Deuteronomy 18.15, there's a promise in the Old Testament that God will raise up a prophet like Moses. So they're anticipating that this prophet's going to come. And these disciples are saying, Jesus is a prophet like that. So that's a good thing. Next, they describe his trial and crucifixion. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. They get the facts right. They describe Jesus as he is. The problem comes in verse 21. Uh, Earlier in the gospel, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. So what Peter is saying is, you're the Messiah that the Old Testament has predicted. We believe that. Now, the disciples change their story. They say, uh, we had hoped that he'd be the one to redeem Israel. So what they're saying is that because he's died, uh, we don't think he's this guy anymore. He's somebody else. He's just a prophet. So, obviously, Jesus doesn't like that. He doesn't appreciate that. But he holds his tongue until he gets to their description of the resurrection. Before we move on, let's, let's take a step back and draw out a point of application we can see here. Uh, these disciples, for them, this is the disappointment of all disappointments. You know, they have been following this guy for likely three years. They thought that he was going to come in Jerusalem riding on a horse with a sword in hand, that he'd drive out the Romans, install himself as king, and that they would just get to, to ride his coattails off into the sunset. Instead, he enters town on a donkey, he is killed by the Romans, and then they've got their bags packed and they're just headed back home. So they've had a huge letdown, and while we're, we will probably never face as significant of a disappointment as they faced, uh, we still face suffering and disappointments and unmet expectations. Jen and I just found out recently that some of our dear friends back in Louisville went to a doctor's appointment to hear the heartbeat of their baby that they had been so eagerly anticipating. And when they got there, they found out that the baby didn't have a heartbeat and had stopped growing uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, So, I mean, Jen and I know, we know from experience that that's a really tough thing to deal with. it's, It's tremendous grief, and it's a hard test of faith. But what we have to realize, unlike these disciples, we have to realize that no matter how our circumstances around us change or how our emotions within us change, that God is who he said he is, that he never changes, that no matter what things seem like, Jesus is still the one who can redeem. The second half of verse 21 brings us on to the third key point in the story, that this is their lack of faith in the resurrection. What they say is that it's now the third day since these things have happened. They're saying here that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. He said repeatedly throughout the gospel, on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. They're saying it's the third day and it hasn't happened. 
So they're essentially calling Jesus a liar at this point. These women, they, I mean, they tell the story. They say that the women have gone to the tomb. They've seen that it's empty. They've seen angels instead of his body. Then some of their friends, the other disciples, go to the tomb. They verify that the body's gone. But because nobody's actually seen Jesus yet, they don't believe that it's happened. They just say, it's the third day. He hasn't done it. When he does finally come, later in the narrative, which we read, he allows them to see him, to talk to them. He allows them to touch him and feel his wounds. But until he eats a piece of fish in front of him, they don't believe that he's actually there. So obviously, these disciples have failed to understand something pretty significant in the story. Obviously, we know how Jesus is going to respond to this. He's going to respond by rebuking the disciples. And this part always cracks me up. Because Jesus, who to them is a stranger, says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. If I was traveling down the road with one of my friends and this guy I didn't know, and out of nowhere he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart, uh, I'd probably stop traveling with that guy. I'd take my friend, we'd go on another road. But these guys just receive it, and they acknowledge that obviously there's something that's wrong in their thinking. So what Jesus does here is he's going to correct all these things that they're thinking wrong. He's going to correct the fact that he has indeed been resurrected. He's going to correct the fact that they don't think that he's the Messiah, who he is. And in order to do this, Scripture's very clear about what he does. It says that in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The same thing happens in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, it's not clear at first, but what Jesus is referring to here is the Hebrew Bible. Now, we obviously have uh, a Christian Old Testament, but the Hebrew Bible is structured, and the, the books are in a little different order, but we have all the same books. So, Jesus here is referring to the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. They're the law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus says the law of Moses, that's the first part, the prophets, that's the second part, and the psalms, which is the third part. The reason why he calls it the psalms instead of the writings is because the psalms, as we know from our Bibles, is the largest book in that collection. So a lot of times authors and speakers would just refer to that book because everybody knew what they meant. They meant the whole collection. So what he's saying is that everything in the Old Testament points to and prepares people for who Jesus is and what he did. Now, this is important, too, because this is the only place in the New Testament that these three parts of the Hebrew Bible are mentioned. So uh, Jesus is especially uh, particular when he says, the whole thing points toward me. Now, along with this, we read earlier, and I'll just read it again real quick. In verse 46, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance 
and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Uh, We need to realize what Jesus says here about the preaching of the gospel. Uh, He includes it in a list of things that must be fulfilled from the Old Testament. And the other things are that he should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So what he's saying is that the success of global missions, the success of the preaching of the gospel, is as certain as his death and resurrection. Now, for me, that's a pretty encouraging thought because we know he died. You know, there's, there's evidence that he died. And, you know, even if there wasn't evidence, he still wouldn't be alive. He died and he was risen from the dead. We know that. And so because we know that, we can have confidence when we share the gospel with others because we know that it's as certain as his death and resurrection. Sorry. However, even though we know that the outcome's certain, it doesn't mean that we just get to sit back and do nothing. As a church, we need to support missionaries, both uh, spiritually and financially, like the Howards and the Phillips, who are going to go out from our church and hit the mission field. We need to share the gospel with our neighbors, and as we do that, have confidence knowing that the outcome is already provided for us by the gospel. It's an encouraging thought to know that repentance and forgiveness will be proclaimed to all nations because Jesus has risen from the dead. So to summarize the main point of of what we're trying to get out of this passage tonight, we could say that these disciples fail to recognize Jesus as the Messiah because they failed to understand the Old Testament. Obviously, that's not something that we want to do. We want to see Jesus for who he is in the Old Testament so that when we read about him and when we study about him in the New Testament, we know more about who he is. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the Jews cannot understand the Old Testament because there's a veil over their mind. He's saying that without Christ... They can't really understand what it means or what it says. Since we live in light of Christ and we live through faith in him, we should want to read the Old Testament because we've had the veil removed. We can understand it. We can get things out of it that they can't get out of it because Christ has done his work in our hearts and our minds. Now, I want to go ahead and just point out Uh, two things and kind of explain what we'll get out of doing this to kind of give you the the end goal of going through the Old Testament. The first thing that we'll get is pretty obvious. As we go through the Old Testament storyline, we're going to understand more of the Old Testament. Obviously, if, if we preach through the Old Testament and at the end of it, we don't understand more of it, then we've failed pretty miserably. In order to demonstrate how a a better understanding of the Old Testament can help us understand some obscure passages, I'm going to give you two examples. The first one is concerning the name of our first daughter, Dinah. 
Some of you may be asking, when you heard that our daughter was Dinah, you may have thought, you named your daughter Dinah. Why? You know, really, what, what were you thinking? Have you not read the book of Genesis? Have you not read Genesis 34 and the story of Dinah? And if you didn't think that, then that's okay, too. But lots of people do. So we're not going to go through the whole story today. I'm just going to summarize it for you. What happens in Genesis 34 is Dinah is a daughter of Jacob and Leah. So her brothers are the 12 guys of Israel. And she's out one day doing something, and this Gentile, Prince Shechem, sees her, is attracted to her, and he uh, takes her as his wife and defiles her. Her brothers, as any good brothers do, when they find out about this, they want the guy's head on a plate. And in order to make this happen, they trick Shechem and his father and all the men in their village into a deal. They say, if you guys will all be circumcised, you can marry Dinah. And so these guys, I mean, I guess the prince was really attracted to her, say, sure, we'll do it. So they all have the operation, and Levi and Simeon, two of Dinah's brothers, wait a couple days until these guys are all sitting around, and they're sore, and they're recovering from the operation, and they just roll into town and kill them all, because they can't do anything. So that's the story of Dinah. (laughs) Obviously, at first glance, it's not cheery, and it doesn't make sense why someone would name their daughter after that character. When we, get it, when we come across a story like this in the Old Testament, we need to ask, why is it in there? Now, obviously it's in there because God inspired Moses to write that story, to, to record it. But why? You know, why is it there? And these kinds of questions are answered by knowing more of the story. If we I've been reading Genesis up to this point, and we'll see that this is fall. We'll see that the most important part of the story of Genesis at this point is the promise of Abraham and, and tracing it from generation to generation to generation. So it's gone from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, and now Jacob is getting ready to pass it on to one of his sons. The firstborn son is Reuben, and so that's the one that the promise would have gone to. But we know that it doesn't. The Messiah doesn't come from Reuben's line. Reuben is disqualified because he was sexually immoral. The next two oldest sons are Simeon and Levi. You'll recognize their names from the story of Dinah. They were disqualified because of their violence in this story. So then the promise goes to the next oldest son, which we know is Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, And he's the one who comes from Judah's line and redeems Israel and us. So, for us, the story of Dinah isn't just some crazy story tucked away in the Old Testament. It shows that through suffering, God can bring about salvation. Through a seemingly meaningless event at the time, God can provide a way to redeem his people. And so, That's what Dinah means to us, and it's because we know that that that's why the story is there, what it means, and what it's for. It's to tell us that that God does things that we don't expect in ways we don't expect. Another great story is found in Judges 4, 
and it's about this woman named J.L. and a tent peg. And a uh, funny thing about this verse is when my wife and I got married, they, uh, these girls at our church threw her a shower, and they sent me this questionnaire so that they could ask her the same questions and see how many of our answers were the same. I'm not sure how many answers we got right, but one of them was, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And I answered, just kind of kidding, Judges 4.21, which is when this woman, uh, we'll find out, kills this guy with a tent stake. And my wife, when she knew that I had answered the questions, knew that that's the verse that I had put down. So I feel like we got a prize or something for that. So the story is, there's this woman named Jael, and there's this commander of the Canaanite army in a tent. And she goes into the tent with a hammer and a tent stake and pounds it into the guy's skull and kills him. So either the, the, book of Jud- the author of Judges just thought that this was a really cool way to assassinate an enemy leader, or the story has uh, more significance and maybe a little bit of both. In order to figure out what this story means, we've got to go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And we're going to cover this passage next week, so I don't want to go into it too much. But let's just, uh, what we'll say is that there's this pattern in the Old Testament based on God's judgment on the serpent in Genesis 3. What he says is that the offspring of the woman, who's Eve, will bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent. And we know that that's kind of pointing towards Christ and telling us about him. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's this pattern where the offspring of the woman, who are the people of God, bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent, who are the enemy. So here's this woman, J.L., who goes into this guy's tent and kills him by bruising his head with a tent stake. And what, why this story is recorded is because it gives God's people hope in his promise that while, while the final victory isn't achieved there as she kills this guy in his tent, it gives them hope that one day God is going to do what he said he would do in Genesis 3. And we know, thankfully, that he has done that through Christ. The second thing that we will get, in addition to understanding the Old Testament better, and, I, and also, I don't want you to feel like all the, testament, all the stories in the Old Testament are this way. We're not going to you know, study all these really weird stories and try to explain why they're there. Uh, these are just two really good examples of how going over the storyline can help us explain some really crazy things. So the second major payoff of studying the Old Testament is that we're going to understand more of the New Testament. Now, in order to explain this, I, I hope that most of you have seen the movie Shrek. Because Shrek helps illustrate this, this concept called an interpretive framework. And that's just it's a fancy term for how we process information. So if you think of it as a net, when we watch things or read things or see things, uh, information comes into our mind and some of it gets stuck in our net, and we say, oh, that's this thing or that thing. Some of it just goes right through. So in the movie Shrek, there's a scene where Shrek, uh, Donkey, and Princess Fiona are walking through a forest. And 
As they're doing so, they encounter Robin Hood, who comes down with his merry men, and then these guys perform a little dance, and then there's a kung fu fight between Princess Fiona and the merry men. Hopefully you remember that. If not, uh, you know, go out and rent it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. If I were to sit down and watch this scene with my five-year-old niece, there's parts of that that she would get and she would see, and there's parts that she wouldn't. So she would see the guys dance, and she would laugh and giggle and maybe try to imitate them, and she would see the fight and you know, maybe get scared or do something else. Whereas when I see it, you know, I, I see Robin Hood and his merry men, and I recognize who Robin Hood is and the stories associated with him. And then when they do the dance, I recognize that the producers of Shrek are trying to imitate Riverdance. And when they do the super slow motion rotation kung fu kick, that they're imitating the Matrix. I know that that's a reference to the Matrix. My five-year-old niece doesn't. And the reason why is because I've seen the Matrix, and so that's changed my net. And so when that image comes on the screen, it gets stuck in there. The same thing happens when we read scripture. The authors of scripture consistently and continually refer to other parts of scripture. So the more familiar we are with the Old Testament, as we read the New Testament, when they do this, those things are going to get stuck in our net. Our, our holes are going to get smaller, we're going to recognize more, and our devotional times will be more fruitful. And, I mean, a great thing about it is that books that we've read before, we'll go back and we'll reread because we're going to understand more of it and we're going to love God's Word even more because of it. Another reason that we'll get more out of the New Testament is that the Apostle Paul tells us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. When he speaks of the Old Testament saints in 1 Corinthians 10:11, he says that the events of their lives happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's saying that we live in the time that the Old Testament saints hoped for. We have the unique privilege of seeing all the things that they wanted to see and didn't get to. He's saying that we know who the Messiah is. He's Jesus Christ, and by his grace, we get to have a relationship with him. So because of that, the faith of the Old Testament saints can encourage our faith. Their example can instruct our lives, and their knowledge of Scripture and God's plan for them can encourage us and can challenge us to strive for the same level of understanding. So I realize that tonight's sermon has been a little different. It's been an introduction to, the, to where we're going and hasn't really covered a specific passage or a specific topic. But I hope that you understand where we're going to go and, and why we're going to go there and that it's going to be beneficial, that it's going to be fruitful. Uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, I started to think about the Bible that I used during college. And... I remember that towards the end of my college years, the, the back part of it was pretty worn. You know, the pages were kind of ragged, and you could tell that I had used it quite a bit. But the front part of it was were still in pretty pristine condition. Most people would have thought that it just came off the shelf if it was just an Old Testament. And it was because I barely read it. And when I did, I understood what it meant even less. And 
I don't, I don't want to make you think that understanding the Old Testament is some difficult task that we shouldn't even try to do. I mean, it's the, the best thing about it is that it's a story. It's a story of God's unfolding plan of redemption for his people. And that if we want to understand it, the only thing we have to do is read it. And then reread it, and then reread it again, and just, just keep reading it. As, and we'll get more and more and more of it. As we go through this series this fall, we're going to make available to you guys the passages that we're going to cover. I don't know if we'll put them on the city or we'll pass them out. or we'll, in, in some form, you'll know what we're going to preach on the next week and the next week and the week after that. And we'll probably do it in two forms where there's going to be, because some of them, like you saw, we're going to cover the book of Judges. So obviously that's a pretty big chunk. So we'll have, for the really adventurous types, the big chunk. And then for those of you that you know, have social lives, we'll have a, a, some key points that we're going to cover in the sermon. And I would encourage you that as we do this, as we go through... Uh, the series. Try to read it on your own. Read it with your families. Read it to your kids. And talk about what it means, about how we apply the text, about what we do with it. And I'd even encourage you to pray that as you're reading the passage that week, that God would give you opportunities uh, in your lives to share some truth from that story with a lost person. And that, that even as we're studying the Old Testament, we would be evangelizing and we would be sharing Christ from the Old Testament because that's the goal of doing this. The goal isn't just so that we know more about the Old Testament and we know more about the New Testament. The goal is that we know Christ more and that we're more in awe of who he is because we see him not only in the New Testament but also in the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to cover Genesis 1 through 3 together. And... I hope that you'll read that. I hope that you'll go through that and you'll try to do some of the things we've said to do. Uh, As we conclude tonight, I hope that tonight you've been reminded of the importance of the Old Testament, that you're excited about the fact that we're going to study it. I remember talking to my wife's parents, and I really hope they don't listen to this recording now, but about they, they moved to a new city and they were looking for a church and they went to a church one Sunday morning and they said, Jen asked them how it was and they said, well, the guy preached from the Old Testament. And I hope that we don't have that reaction. I hope you don't come and say, well, I don't want to hear anything out of the Old Testament because that's just boring old stuff. You know, there's nothing in there about people getting killed with tent pegs or anything exciting like that. I hope that, that we're excited to see what God does in the Old Testament and what it means for us today. I think that if, if we'll find that if we really want to know Christ and we really want to understand the New Testament, then we'll really want to understand and read the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for for getting me through without coughing because I don't think Jerry can tap dance. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is clear, Lord, and that your plan of redemption 
came to fruition in Christ. Lord, and we ask that as we study and we read the Old Testament this fall, Lord, that that would be clear to us. Lord, that we would be drawn to a new level of worship, Lord, and a new level of love of Christ, that we would share that with our spouses and our friends and our families, and that we would ooze passion for Christ because of our study of the Old Testament. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace, Lord, and the gift of your promises, and the gift of your word, and we ask that you would just continue to use your Holy Spirit to make them clear to us. In your name we pray. Amen.